I was writing in my journal a few nights ago after what had been just a really great day. Today is Monday, February 11th, 2019. So this was three days ago on Friday the 8th. I woke up at the crack of dawn, as I usually do, but instead of getting into my usual morning flow, I got ready to head out the door to a dance event called Daybreaker. Daybreaker starts with a yoga class at 6 a.m., followed by a rock and dance party, which finishes just in time for all the 9 to 5ers to head to work. Great way to start the day. Then I joined some friends for breakfast to celebrate a birthday, and then I went home to decompress for a couple hours. Then, with a big bag of carrots and a yoga mat in my backpack, I rode out to West Philly to cook and serve with the West Philly Food Not Bombs. I had been to one Food Not Bombs event in Portland, Oregon, but never in Philly. So I got to slice grapes for a big beautiful fruit salad and saute broccoli for a stir fry and load about 40 boxes of produce into a truck which we then drove a few blocks over to Malcolm X Park, where there were already about 20 to 30 people waiting on our arrival. Without going into too much more detail, I really just felt such incredible love while I was there. Not just because I was serving others, but because the community was coming together, and there wasn't any structure around it. Just food for people who need it, no questions asked. After the sun went down, I got back on my bike with a basket full of apples and began the ride to Northern Liberties. This is where the yoga mat comes in. I had been invited by some dear friends to a cacao ceremony for healing the womb. Now this is not typically something I would go to, but I was just feeling so great that I wanted to be in a space with people coming together with prayers and intentions. And apparently men have wombs too. And I don't know much about cacao, but I do believe it nurtures a connection to the heart. So when we set our intentions before lighting our candles, my mind was clear. As everyone declared their intentions, I wasn't thinking about what I would say. I just trusted that the words would channel through. I heard everyone. And when my time came, I moved toward the altar with the candles, closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and simply said, breathe and remember. That's it. So simple. So I rode home afterwards and sat down with my journal, and reflecting on the day, I saw the faces of the people I had interacted with on the dance floor, on the streets, in the park, and at the ceremony. Breathe and remember. Remember who you are. Remember the moments of insight. Remember the wisdom. Remember your purpose. What is my purpose? What is our collective purpose? And these words came through into my journal.
poverty ain't right, but it exists. How can we live in a world free of poverty, war, and ecological death? Actually, I wrote ecological destruction. Our mission on this physical plane is to strive to answer that question. Our mission on the spiritual plane is to live in a perpetual state of love and peace. And then I went to sleep. And I woke up Saturday morning with a plan to meet with someone I admire very deeply. The following episode is a conversation with that special someone. Ms. Rashida Ali Campbell. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are in Yaden? Yaden. Yaden. Yes. Southwest Philly. Yaden's actually one of the oldest cities in America. I feel it as I'm driving through the streets. I can really feel there's like an old energy here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You look too pretty for podcasting. Oh. You should be on TV. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Even with my scraggly beard right now. Keeping my face warm in the cold winter. That's the feeling look. They need to fit right in. <laughs> well, we got a beautiful sunny Saturday. Mm-hmm. And We've got Ms. Rashida Ali Campbell. Now, before I go into my introduction, just like to open it up to you if there's anything you'd like to say before we get right into it. No, let's get right into it. Okay. So, this podcast, Feeling Philly, is a mishmash of conversations with individuals that. I feel have important stories and ideas to share. And from what I know about you, it's not much, but I know you have started an organization called Love Loving Love. Yes. This is probably my favorite name of any organization I've ever come across. It works in so many beautiful ways. Thank you. And you are also responsible for getting started one of the first urban earthship projects in the world yes well in america in america mm-hmm. so those two combined are enough for me to be really curious about who is this person sitting across from me and what kind of stories do you have and how did you end up here and so where to begin with this conversation i guess i would just like I'd like to learn more, and I I think the listeners would like to just hear about some of the more important experiences of your life that have led you to start an organization like Love Loving Love and have, as you said right before we started this, what has cultivated in you this deep, profound determination to have a positive impact on Philadelphia? Well, I was born in New York. I was born in New York in the 70s. And um, in the 80s, in Philadelphia and in a lot of urban cities, crack cocaine 
had a, a serious impact on the nature of African-American families. My family was no exception. I'm the oldest of six kids. My mother and father together uh, moved us to Florida from New York. Uh, there is where they started their drug addictions. And we had to come to Philadelphia to get away from DHS because DHS was about to take us from our parents. So they came to Philadelphia and in Philadelphia, they decided to get rehab and they put us into foster care. Now this was two parents? My mom and dad, yep. And six siblings or five siblings? Six. Six siblings, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we spent a substantial amount of time in um, shelters and, and homeless shelters and even in the parks before we got into placement. So when we came to Philadelphia, our first introduction to Philadelphia was uh, being in foster care and living with some of our family members. But one of the things I remember fondly of Philadelphia is that it always looked so busy. And everywhere I looked, it seemed like people were busy. It looked um, clean when I first got to Philadelphia and it looked like opportunity was here. I can't, we had come from Florida in Orlando on Orange Blossom Trail. So we were like two, one of two houses on the block. So I was really excited to see, you know, a lot of people again coming from New York. You know, there was a lot of people there. And then going from New York to Florida where we didn't know anybody to come back to Philadelphia was like a, brush of, a breath of fresh air. How old were you at the time you moved back to Philly? I was 13 super, when 13. I came back. Mm-hmm. And you were in foster care and living with relatives because your parents were, were seeking help with... Drug and alcohol drug abuse. Drug and alcohol abuse. Yes. Okay. Yep. And... Um, it was in a newspaper. Actually, you probably find it right now. Daniel Rubin wrote the story in the Inquirer. Uh, the reason why it was a big deal is because my mom and dad, when they came here, um, the organization now known as One Day at a Time, ran by Melvin Wells, because his, his father was in charge of that. I'm sorry, Melchizedek Wells. His father was in char- charge of that organization. Um, when we got back to Florida, that organization offered us a house for a dollar. And that was the rent for the year. Wow. And that act of generosity and kindness towards a family who didn't have anything really set us up for where we are today. Because uh, we were in and out of, like I said, family members' homes. And we were in and out of foster homes. And we had never owned our own home. So organizations said, here, you can stay here for as long as you want, a dollar a year. So this was our first time having our own space that we took care of and I think because it was only a dollar and our family was so big that made like a big impact on the writer so he came out to see us and we had came home on Christmas um, from out of foster care all six of us into that dollar house on Woodstock Street in North Philadelphia Hmm. and so when he came out to write that article um where were your parents at the time? My parents were very, very active in the drug and alcohol community. They had become activists at that point. Um, the the house, rehab helped them. The rehab turned their life around. They went from the rehab started with one house with five men to over 300 members and over 15 home houses. And that organization still is alive and thriving today. And my father was one of the first people in that organization. My mother, she came a few years later and became one of the counselors. And my dad's brother came not too long afterwards, and 
he was also one of the counselors. He died um, a few years, you know, um, 10 years ago or so. But my mom and dad, they both worked very hard to get us out of foster care by getting clean. But the work that they did in the rehab started getting noticed by 60 Minutes, um, the news, the mayor. And so one day at a time, drug and alcohol recovery community began to grow and thrive. They got the intention of Hope Church, um, Greater Urban Affairs Coalition. Uh, a lot of people in Philadelphia started noticing communities recovering on their own, not going outside of the community to find help, but doing it in the community in which they're abusing drugs. You know, one of the hard things to do is walk past a drug dealer when you're in rehab, <clears throat> when you're recovery. Especially if you came back from rehab and you're, you know, you went away to this nice lofty place that has all these beautiful things to eat and, you know, all this wonderful um, scenery. And then you come back to Philadelphia and it looks rough and you're walking past drug dealers all day. That temptation to use is so heavy. So the idea behind One Day at a Time was to have people recover in the communities in which they have to live. So it can, so they can sustain longer and um, the recovery time is longer. Um, mm, so it's not so much of like some programs, it's a, more of a retreat where you just leave your community, 30 day immersive experience, and then you come back and then you've got all these challenges again that were there before. Mm -hmm. This is like you're in your community, the healing takes place within the community with all those challenges and distractions all around you. All around you, but you have support, uh, people who's helping you. Like, for example, if someone comes straight off the street, they're not going to the store by themselves. They're in twos and threes. And a lot of people, in, even in today's day and age, are growing increasingly antisocial. It's rare to see a group of older people walking together in purpose without anybody on their phone and without anybody, uh, you know, with headphones on. These people were um, going to meetings together. They were uh, healing through trauma together. So they were like peer recovery specialists without even knowing it. And my mom and dad thrived in that community because they were able to use their natural um, abilities, which were to help people and to do some civic action and civil duty here in Philadelphia. My parents were, uh, my, da my dad's mother was a community activist in New York. Uh, she did a lot of work for the mayors in New York. And my dad, when he started doing work with One Day at a Time, he started doing work with other organizations. Um, so I watched my parents get involved in the community. They didn't just take from the community and they didn't just fall ill to the, the ills of society. They also decided to give back in ways that would help people, but not only that, save their lives. So we went from having strangers living in our house and people meetings with, you know, tens and 20 people in our house every day and hearing, you know, the, the problems that were going on in the city. And, you know, we'd be at the top of the stairs listening downstairs. And, and I just got so interested in how to make the city better because I seen how this organization took my family in. You know, the city is affectionately called the city of brotherly love. But when you see people really show it and don't want anything in return, it makes you want to go give it again to someone else. And when I first came here, we felt so alone because the stigma of being in foster care and not having anything, you know, not having like new clothes and shoes and things like that. So to come here and have people treat you like you were important, 
and that um, it didn't matter that you once lived in a shelter. It was different for, for me, and I wanted more of that, and I wanted other kids and young people who were suffering because their parents were using drugs to feel what I was feeling. So I started, um, along with some of the uh, members of that organization, I started something called Youth Sharing Inner Problems. And this was my first time trying to give back to the community something that I felt they were giving me, which was healing. Um, so the group was comprised of young people aged uh, 9 to 17 who had just been in foster care or coming out of foster care, reuniting with their parents after being taken away from their parents or separated from their parents because of drug and alcohol abuse. And so we were helping each other recover. So we, we weren't drug addicts, but we were the victims of their actions. And so we created our own little space to heal. So the grown-ups were doing their thing, the youth were doing their thing. And so this is where I kind of came up, um, around people who wanted to do something to help others get better. Watching your neighborhood deteriorate or watching someone who used to be uh, a successful member of society start to use drugs and to watch them start to deteriorate and watch them start to lose things in their home and to watch their car get repossessed, watch their children start to not come out the house anymore or start to come out the house unkempt, those kind of things. When you just stand by and don't do anything about it, it grows. The situation doesn't change and it gives permission for that situation to grow. And so growing up, I naturally always broke up fights broke up fights because I don't like to see people fighting. And so my, my uh, mission, so to speak, became, became trying to bring more of the love that I was feeling in these groups out into the streets because I didn't want to see what I was starting to see, which was the deterioration of Philadelphia with everybody's permission. With nobody kind of saying, you know, hey, this is our community. Let's stop throwing trash on the ground. Or, hey, that's a homeless person. Let's all stop walking around him like we don't see him. I started to feel like I could do something about it, even though I'm young. My parents never told me, you're too young to do this or too young to do that. And I um, felt like I could do something at that age. So at 15, I think I went to Washington. I spoke to the Congressional Black Caucus about homelessness in Philadelphia. It was bothering me a lot because I had lived in shelters and I lived in the parks and we had seen it firsthand, but um, I'm so young. I don't really know what the city is doing about it. I just see it and I see it rampant and I, I want the city to do more. What did you say when you went down to D.C.? I said that, you know, Philadelphia, this is a city of brotherly love and yet um, we as citizens have forgotten what we came here for or we forgot what our ancestors came here for. We have responsibility to the people from the top to the bottom. And, you know, this organization that I'm with at the time was youth sharing in the problems. Um, we're working even in our youth to do something about that. So we were giving out food to homeless, you know, making bags and stuff. We were collecting money and trying to um, do that, whatever, what little that we could, you know, at our age, but we were, we were aware. And so I was telling Congress that uh, the city needed more shelters, they needed more um, money for rehabs, and they needed more um, support. They needed more social support for the people that the city was leaving behind.
that was people that was falling through the cracks. So would you say your situation growing up in Philly, was that common among a lot of kids in the community? Our situation was common and uncommon at the same time because my father was still in the home. A lot of the children that we grew up around, their parents were not together. And a lot of them were living with their grandparents. So you would see the effect that drugs had on the community, but it affected every home differently. So some homes you would see no parents, kids raising themselves. And then others you would see, you know, young parents, 12, 13, 14 year old parents, 10 year olds getting pregnant. This was in, in the 90s and people who we knew. Um, so in our community, in our neighborhood, they looked at us a little strange because our dad was in the house. And people used to bring that up all the time, that my dad lived with my mom what in would, the same house. What would people say? Um, who was that guy? Who's that man? He's there all the time. Is that your dad? Is that all y'all dad? Because we're six kids and we all have the same father. And in our neighborhood, you would have it. You would see a lot of children that had multiple parents, um, multiple fathers. So, you know, a mother that had maybe two or three mm. fathers. Um, and you would see both gentlemen or, you know, maybe you, not neither one. So our, our friends would ask us all the time, you know, who's that? And, you know, he's coming around all the time that your dad, that's all y'all dad. And um, he was really good at keeping the boys away. So it, it became a big deal. Mr. Ali is on the, on the block. So certain boys wouldn't come to our door. But um, we were different in the fact that our dad was in the, in the home um, when we came back to Philadelphia. Other than that, we looked the same just like everybody else. So what was it about your dad? What was unique about him? My grandmother had instilled in him a sense of social and civic duty. So when he lost his children, it became like his, he became laser focused on getting us back out of foster care. Because his mother had just... Because his mother had drilled in him that for one, um, there needs to be a certain amount of pride that you have in your community and giving back to your community and making it healthy and strong. And he had become a drug addict. And so he had felt like he had um, disappointed his mother, shamed her, and so he wanted to fix that. But also, in the process, he lost his children. And so I think that put a light bulb in his head that um, in order to be all that I'm saying out in these streets, I have to be first example in my home. And my dad had a desire, always had a desire to help people. But who is he helping when his children are in state custody? And his wife is, you know, um, trying to get rehab somewhere and you're in another state. So my dad, uh, he was born in New York also. And he comes from a, um, a fairly large family. But we were, we're, we're always very spiritual. We were always praying together as a family growing up. Even when my mom and dad started getting heavy into their drug and alcohol abuse, we were still praying every morning together as a family. And they tried to hide a lot of things from us. Me being older, I saw a lot of things. But what I'm, the one thing I did always see my dad try to do is try to provide. He, he, he started out as like a functioning addict. And then it just got out of control because of the power of crack. You know, I think um, it's like a bag of Lay's. You know, you can't just eat one. Hmm. And I, thought he, I think he thought I can just eat one. You know, he was with other people who were functioning. And it, it, he could not function. And so... I think for him, uh, his children became one of the guiding forces of him getting clean. And in that, he became an advocate for children to where now, today, he works over 
at um, JJSC helping uh, children who are in the juvenile system uh, get access to services, help their parents get access to services, help so that they can uh, avoid recidivism and uh, talk to their attorneys to, to make sure that everything's happening in their best interest, not taking plea deals that are against their best interest, things of that nature. Um, so what's special about my dad is he didn't leave. Hmm. I can't answer why. I can't answer that question. Um, he married my mother. I think you did answer it, yeah. Yes, that, that, and I was just about to ask you about his relationship with your mother. Um, what was that like? Was there a lot of love there? Did they, did yes. they bicker a lot? My, my dad, my mom was 10 years younger than my dad, and she looked like a model, I guess he, he always says. And so he was smitten with her when he was introduced to her. He was, she was like 15, he was 26. So, <laughs> first of all, he was too old for her. But um, in those days, my mother's mother was an addict and she wasn't around. She was in rehab in another state. Mm. And so my dad kind of scooped my mom and was taking care of her a bit. And so that's how their love spawned, uh, where he was providing for her because her mom wasn't there and her dad had died and her older brother had died of an overdose in the house. So he was like a parent who she was in love with almost because he was her provider, he was her teacher. She didn't really know how to do that many things. She was 15. Hmm. But then he also, you know, married her. So they they stayed married for they're they're together right now, but they um they got divorced after 20 year, 25 years of marriage. They did get a divorce. Um but today in 2019, they're they're dating again. They did get a divorce, but um that was because I think you know, every situation brings with itself problems. And recovery brought a new set of problems for my parents. Mm. The ones that were hard for them for, to work through. And so when they separated, they separated on paper. And they lived in separate houses. But looking at them and talking to them and being around them, you would never really know that they broke up. The so, love was still there. And it is still today. Like, they, they're together right now. So I don't know what you call that. They're certainly not acting divorced, but... That works for me, you know. Um, but they they always told us no fighting in the house. You're not allowed to fight each other. Um, y'all look out for each other. We don't to this day. We don't fight each other. We don't really argue that much. My me and my siblings. And we were grew up. We we were grown up isolated a bit because my parents were in you know in uh, addiction. And the way that works is you know if your parents are running the streets, they leave you in the house. So we spent a great deal of time in in solitary and in, in the house in our rooms so we, we got close like that mm. so so to this day we do a lot of things together my brothers and sisters are my best friends so yes love was something that we always always were told was more important than money because we didn't have no money so loving each other and, and sticking together is the most important thing sticking each other together to keep each other warm because there's no heat you know so no fighting you know because you know, you're going to need each other so they so that necessarily at a very young age. And I, I, of all the things that they've done for us, that's one thing to this day that I thank them for. Reminding us to pray, reminding us to stick together, reminding us to love one another. Because it's really easy to forget things that your parents teach you uh, if you don't practice it. And we practiced it a lot. One purpose of this podcast is to bridge gaps between communities. Uh, I feel like I have connections to lots of different communities um, 
people out in the suburbs and people in the city and just lots of different people that I'm interacting with. And so this podcast is meant to be educational. It's meant to provide perspectives to people that may have preconceived notions about how things, why people are the way they are. And so I think you're bringing up something that is really, really heartfelt. And it raises a question, which is, why? Why Why is there this pattern of addiction? What's at the root of this? Pain. Pain is at the root of it. <clears throat> As humans, we try to cope or avoid pain. So if you're always trying to avoid pain, now you're coming in contact with it. You're either trying to numb yourself to it or pass it on to somebody else. And in our communities, um, if you have lack of resources and if you have lack of opportunity and if you have lack, if you focus on that lack, you become depressed and you become to feel like um, you need to heal yourself in some kind of way. Drugs is a cheap, accessible way to self-medicate. And if you see other people functioning and, and, and getting on to the next day, you think, okay, maybe this is not so bad. And I think what happened was, you know, people who were living in a certain amount, a level of poverty, there's very few things that make a person feel good. And so you can either try to feel good spiritually or with your flesh. And so, you know, eating makes you feel good. Sex makes you feel good. Being touched makes you feel good. These are a few things, but these are all fleshly things. Mm -hmm. So you resort to making your flesh feel better mm. because your spirit is so low. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to, easier to feed your flesh than it is to sit for a quiet moment and try to connect to your spirit. Mm. And when there's other people in distress also, you try to see what they're doing to cope and then you emulate it. Because they seem like they're getting along. They're, they're smoking every day, but they're still at work. So maybe that's, a, that's an option. You know, that person... Um, they're drinking every day. They're falling. Asleep. That's not an option for me. So you you pick and choose your medicine, and and then the communities you know that have lack, they use what makes them feel good to get through the day. And so if you're 16 years old and your parents not home, nobody's teaching you or showing you the way, and you have like really low self esteem and you're having a hard time finding some spiritual edification, and this boy starts feeling on you and telling you you're beautiful. Now here's pleasure again. But it's, it's a physical pleasure, but it's pleasure nonetheless. And so, yeah, you, you're going to resort to, you know, pleasuring yourself, not thinking of, you know, STDs and protecting yourself because you're so focused on your, your pleasure driven because if you've been focused on your lack of pleasure, now you're insatiable when you get into these opportunities to be pleasured. So promiscuity and overdoses and stuff is prevalent in the communities where people feel like they're not getting what they need. So, again... Um, growing up and see these communities and you don't see intervention, you don't see nobody helping, you realize we got to do something within. Like, we got to do something ourselves. There is no rescue boat coming. There's no cavalry coming. There's a man right there overdosing and nobody's coming. So what are you going to do about it? Literally. And so to bridge this to communities who uh, are sustainable communities and people who care about green living and yogis and all that stuff... I'm going to tell you, my first introduction to that lifestyle was sitting on a couch in this house, in that back room almost 15 years ago, watching the Sundance Channel. 
because I, I love documentaries and stuff, but I'm heavy into like history and I never was into sustainability. I didn't know anything about earthships and uh, tiny homes and um, meditation and things like that because the people that I grew up around didn't talk like that. If you was stressed, get a drink. If you, you know, having a hard time, smoke some herb. So to to come outside of what I learned in my community, I had to go outside of my community for that. Wow. And so Sundance Channel, I watch Sundance Channel all the time. What I love that? Sundance Channel is like a channel for um, it's like a channel that has a bunch of documentaries. It's just nonstop documentaries. It's like Vice, you know, um. and um. <clears throat> It's uh, good quality documentaries, uh, not watered down. You know, I want the real, real. And so one day I was sitting back there and um, I have a clock of his picture up there. Michael Reynolds, his, he actually, his, uh, he gave me that. Um, <clears throat> a, 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 a program came on called Garbage Warrior. And at the time I was bartending. I was going to school, I wanted to be a doctor. I was going to go to school for medicine. And I was a biology student. But I was also a minor in um, religion because I wanted to do healing, but I was struggling with Western medicine and uh, um, using drugs to medicate people and heal people. I was, so I was trying to find other avenues of healing and I was just, you know, research. I was doing research. But at the time I was a bartender at 17th and Market at the Pyramid Club. It's like a private club in the city. So I would I was serving, you know, um, city council members and dignitaries of all different types in the city, and so I had opportunities to hear their conversations. They're watching Fox News all day, so I'm able to hear perspectives I'd never heard before. And as um, I'm sitting back there one day watching the Sundance Channel, this movie called Garbage Warrior came on, and I sat there mesmerized for almost two hours <clears throat> because this man Michael Reynolds was sat there and talked about how. He had to fight to get his architecture license back because the state didn't like what his building materials were. And, um, you know, I have a little bit of a rebellion streak in me, a little bit of revolutionary spirit in my soul. And when I saw that he was going to fight anyway, I was so inspired because I wanted to see what he was going to do and what was, what was he trying to accomplish. Ultimately, he was trying to build something out of nothing. And there's a whole lot of nothing in Philadelphia, a whole lot of vacant lots, a whole lot of trash, a whole lot of abandoned homes. And I said, yo, if, if he can do this in New Mexico or all around the world, what's stopping me from doing this in Philly? And I have a backyard of my own. I can do one of these in my backyard. But you know what would be better? If everybody can have one of these. Or if people who is struggling to pay their bills can like go to their kitchen and... See, there's nothing in their kitchen, but can go to their garden and grab a banana or grab, go to their pod, their pond and get some fish. Like they don't have to struggle. And I want this in the city. What do I got to do? And so as I'm watching this show, all these ideas are coming to my mind about there's like thousands of vacant lots in Philadelphia. I see tires everywhere. They don't got it. And at the time too, I, I was also, my second job, I was working at a shelter, a homeless shelter for many children. But we didn't, we... Didn't have enough room for everybody. We always had to wait until somebody left to get somebody else in. And we started getting people in from out of town to where we couldn't 
we didn't have that from Philadelphians because people from Baltimore and Jersey and stuff started coming in. So I was like, where, there's nowhere for these people to go. We could be building Earthship style shelters. Like I just started feeling like, oh, so much opportunity here. What can I do? Like, I, what can I do? And so I did reached out to the company, Earthship. I, re, I reached out to Jonah Reynolds. I reached out to Michael. I reached out to everybody, hoping somebody would respond to me. And Michael, uh, his son Jonah, reached out to me. And he's like, you know, Philly sounds cool. And <laughs> what, what, what kind of message did you send to them? What did you say? I said, I just got finished watching this movie son, uh, on the Sundance channel. And I would love if y'all would come to Philly and help me do this. And because I've never seen anything like this before. And there's so many tires here. There's so much land here. There's so much rain here. Like, y'all would do so well here. I just need some help. I don't know what to do. I don't know nothing about buildings. I don't know nothing about construction. But I'm here for it. I want to come and learn. I was just so excited. I, I just was so excited. I said, <clears throat> I, just need to, I just need to know what's the steps. Tell me what's the steps to get the permit here in my city. And Jonah was like, okay. So he just started sending me the steps. Telling me, you know, how to get my community involved. Telling me who to talk to for permits, who to talk to. Um, and that started me doing presentations at schools, presentations for, um, you know, um, home associations and RCOs, uh, registered community organizations. Because I, my idea was, well, Jonah told me that the, the idea was you have to educate the community in which you want to build so that they're not um, afraid and they don't feel um, like they're not part of that conversation left out and also they can be educated so they can help build it and so like this to me this is the answer to so many questions that and so many problems how do we get rid of the trash build something out of it mm. how do we help with the rainstorm runner you know runoff rain catchment systems it just felt like this one house can fix food deserts earthships like what can we not fix with this problem i mean no, what with this solution and so i just wanted one so bad I started collecting tires. Um, I was going to build one in Chalmers Park, but they wouldn't let me dig. Twenty ninth and um, okay, I'm getting excited, going ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but this is great. This um, is good. <laughs> so, Jonah said, "Okay, well, these are the steps." And as we got to the steps of trying to find property and land, and he's he's in New Mexico. Sending at this all time, info. he's still in New Mexico doing that, and he's traveling around the world taking a break from his building in Peru and building in these other countries and responding to my messages. And I just felt like that was so special because here I am, I know nothing about this life or this lifestyle, and they're responding to me like my questions matter. I felt like, wow, I'm right, I'm, I'm here in the hood. And you know, y'all all around the world and y'all care about what I care about. And so I, want, I wanted them here. And, and so I read everything that I could, I ordered books, I ordered the plans. I just became so hungry and trying to eat everything that I could because I knew I had to go back out and educate. And I didn't want to not have any answers. And I didn't want to misrepresent the company. And I wanted one. I wanted to see one in Philly so bad. So we started going to small organizations in Philadelphia who had similar missions to ours in terms of um, bringing um, food to the community when and things say, like that. When you say we, who... Who are you? Who's with you at that time? <laughs> who with me? Mostly um, people who are Earthship enthusiasts. And but when I first started Love, Love, and Love, it was me, my sisters, my husband. Love, Love, and Love started before this vision of the Earthship. Yes, it's Love, Love, and Love started. The original purpose, intention of Love, Love, and Love, and our mission statement is to bring um, love 
and holistic health education to impoverished communities. And I felt like this right here, the hood got to hear about this. So um, I started the company with my sisters. They were on my board and they were on, uh, uh, they had different offices in the company. My husband is still the treasurer, the mayor of Yaden on the board. You know, I started reaching out to people in my immediate circle to, to first support me. Um, but as, as we started getting along, we're 12 years old now, many of our supporters are Earthship enthusiasts. But you're 12 years old? Mm-hmm. We just celebrated 12 years yesterday. Oh, oh, okay, okay. The organization. Yes. So, all right, so you started this 2000, what's that? We started in 2007. 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we reached out to Jonah in 2009. Okay. And so we've been working with him and trying to get this going since then. And so um, when, when he told us what to do, we started going everywhere telling everybody about Earthship. And it was very difficult trying to move past what is an Earthship in some communities. So I had to start from scratch explaining com- compost and off-gassing and our value because you go to these meetings and people are like, what? You want to do what? You want to bring what here? Uh-huh. And so you had to kind of go backwards a little bit sure. and re-educate the community. At the same time, educate myself. Because yeah. I'm so gung-ho about this house but I don't really know too much about, um, you know, uh, compact and thermal mass and all that. So yeah. at the time, I went to Earthship education while I was trying to educate people who I was excited about building with the temporary. You went out to New Mexico? No, I've never been to New Mexico. Um, it's, and it's so interesting because I was, um, um, I was in ROTC in college and my best friend, she's from New Mexico. And and when I found, when we finally started talking about Urshis one day, she was like, "Oh, that building not too far from me. That place not too far from me in Taos." But um, yeah, I I never been there. Uh, at the time, they were about when I first reached out to them, they were about to go to Jamaica, and I wanted to come with them, but I couldn't afford it. So Jonah started sending me information like um, that they normally charge people for for free because he you know I couldn't afford it. So I paid for a book, but he sent me some like um, some pamphlets. Or um, I paid for a small plan, and they gave me the $6,000 plan for free. Like, stuff like that. So, I took that stuff to the mayor, to all every single council person in Philadelphia. I took it to nonprofits and grassroots organizations that were in Philadelphia. And What kind of reactions were you getting? I was getting so many... Well, it depended on who I talked to. When I went to City Hall... Their first reaction was, and these, now these are quotes now, that house looks like a Flintstone house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you want to build a house out of trash? What will that smell like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> these kind of things. So with the municipal, with the municipal side, <clears throat> they were concerned mostly about the aesthetic. But in the community side, like, you know, the, 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 um, the, the growers, the urban growers, the farmers markets, they were going crazy for it. That's when I realized, like, what? This is like a whole thing. Like, this is a whole movement or something. And, you know, um, Mariposa and Reaver's Way and, you know, all these uh, North Philly Peace Park and all these organizations we started, you know, getting in contact with One Art. And uh, they started seeing what we were doing and they wanted to do it also. And so you had um, organizations like North Philly Peace Park, for example, starting to use tires to build Earthship-style greenhouses and um, 
Nick Esposito had one over his uh, garden. We helped him build one there. Uh, we so so okay. So the, the the beginning idea was we don't have enough money or permission to build a full earthship, but what we can do is build earthship style greenhouses to bring awareness and to start raising money. And so you start seeing organization use tires to do things and using um, bottles to decorate. So we would see our influence in the city, mm. but we wouldn't we we didn't see the full structure yet. So we knew land acquisition was the next thing to do. In the process of doing this, we uh, asked John, uh, Michael, would he come to Philly and do um, a talk here? And he agreed to do a talk here for three days. So he did a three-day talk here over the Easter weekend in, uh, I think, 2000. I don't want to say the wrong year on tape. But um, we did a, a three-day weekend uh, at the the museum. So the attendees came to the conference and they got free access to the museum for three days. Uh, and during that time, there was a group out in Bristol, Bristol Silver Lake Nature Center. Silver Lake Nature Center said they, you know, they wanted to build an earthship and they knew we had Michael Reynolds here. And they was like, oh, can you bring him to us so he could help us like tweak the last minute things of our earthship, help us get permits. Because we need permission to build further, and we're, we're struggling getting permission in our township. So we went and we met at White Dog Cafe, and um, <laughs> another sustainable place I'd never heard about. They're talking about grass-fed and all this. And I'm sitting there, like, amazed that people know the difference between a cow that ate grass and one that was in a factory. I'm just, I'm like, no, I'm just like well, this is amazing, and this food tastes great. And it's, wow. it's a difference, truly. Wow. And so... Um, we started sending volunteers to Bristol to Silver Lake Nature Center and help them build that earthship. That is the first earthship in Pennsylvania, but it's not a fully functioning six point design. Uh-huh. So it has a lot of the functions, but it's not the six design principle earthship, 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 full like that. But it's the closest one you'll get to it in Pennsylvania until we build ours. <laughs> so when you're going to talk to these city officials and politicians and whatnot and then initially you have to get over these questions like you're gonna build a house out of garbage so okay you got to diffuse those questions and finally get the conversation going like this is really what it's gonna look like and this is how it works then what were this were the challenges you were coming up against the same ones that we hear about in garbage warriors like it came down to permits no so what was it but there was no more problems. Our problems came when somebody stole my property. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't say it that way because we're still in litigation. Um, we did not have problems with permits because an earthship is um, international. The design is internationally approved by um, architects. So it's not the design is not so unconventional. Uh, it's, it's the materials. But the materials have been shown to be safe and they're, you know, we're, they're not using um, faulty tires. Like they're checking each tire. Like there's, there's standards. Mm. And so the permit process, that that's not a problem. We found an engineer here. Oh, okay. We found a contractor here that would do that. Um, our biggest uh, problem was finding property that was big enough. Because in Philadelphia, the landscape is twins. These, these twin structures that stand next to each other. So you have... Two homes, each one is on 800 square feet. All right, so if something happens to this home, 
If it knocks over, if a wall knocks over, it affects this home, mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. So right now, what you'll see in Philadelphia, and they're, they're calling it the missing tooth syndrome, where you'll see a house and then an abandoned one next to it. And then a house and a house and three abandoned ones next to it. Because, you know, the, the, the twin, like I said, affects the adjacent home. Mm-hmm. So then what happens is once they start demolishing these homes, then you'll have a freestanding home, a tiny, tiny, vacant, empty lot, a standing home, a bigger vacant lot. Mm-hmm. So all these missing gaps. Yeah. How do they get filled? Right. And so uh, we were, we presented to the city. You know, if you give, how about you give us a property to sh- let us show you how we can uh, transform it? Because trying to buy property in the city was so expensive. Because they had put okay, this was the this is the birth of the land bank. Because we started a land bank here in Philadelphia, I was part of that. Wow. We, <laughs> so wait, wait, when you go, when you say you go talk to the city, like you're in a meeting with major officials of the city. Yeah, this took, it took me years too because you know, like you mentioned red tape. You know, we call up there and you say my name is Rashida and they say who. So then you know you have to establish a rapport and get a meeting and then a second meeting and then they take you serious and then a third meeting where the big boys are there finally. But then the follow-up is, you know, where you have to really take control and say, all right, remember what we talked about a few months ago? What's where we are at with that? And a lot of times um, when we get to that stage, that's where money is, is now needs to be uh, in, in place. Because we're asking permission to build, and they say, okay, fine, go ahead. And they say, all right, well, we need a little bit of help. We need some financial help to do that. And they say, okay, we'll find it. And so then that started us fundraising. We wanted property. We needed property. And the city wasn't going to give it to us. And so the land bank didn't exist at that the time. The land bank didn't exist at that time. And so we were going all around the city trying to price uh, land through the, um, look at the land through the BRT, you know, on the different websites where people were selling properties. And we noticed that the properties were grossly overpriced. And there is really no way small grassroots organizations can get a property um, that's three times their budget. You know, if, if your budget is $100,000 and they want three fifty for a property, and that's, you know, that's not, that's not feasible. And, and the, the problem was there were um, over 75,000 vacant and abandoned, um, just vacant land. I'm not even talking about abandoned buildings, just 75,000 vacant lots in Philadelphia, most of them owned by the city. And we couldn't get access to any of them. Why? Um, because there, there was no... Uh, there was no platform in which you can get that uh, land and somebody was following up with your inquiry or following up with anything. You would send an email. I'm still waiting to hear back from inquiries I made years ago on certain properties. There, I don't know what's the, the, uh, the people, I don't know who are the people in place that answer those phone calls and read those emails. But if you are not a million dollar developer, looking for a 10-year tax abatement, you were not getting responses from the city if you wanted a larger parcel of property. And the larger parcels were being held for development. So if you had interest in a property, so to speak, but the one next to it was empty and the one to the left and to the right were empty, the city would hold on to all three, hoping that a developer would grab the bigger piece and make something bigger in that space. So um, uh, WCRP... Uh, myself, my organization, um, Lord have mercy, I don't want to start naming organizations, I don't want to leave anybody out, <laughs> but the Philadelphia Land Bank was born out of the frustration of organizations like myself 
having a hard time acquiring land from the city at an affordable and fair price. And a lot of us were taking care of property. We had community gardens and we were taking care of property. In some cases, you had organizations that were taking care of properties for 15 years and couldn't get the deed to the property because the person who owned it was out of the state or the city owned it, but there were liens on it, you know, things like that. So we got together and we said, you know, we, there needs to be a land bank here so that organizations like ourselves can have access to the properties that, you know, are in our communities deteriorating and we get a fair chance because developers are going to outbid us every time. Now, this is something I've wondered about because on the one hand, you're saying, and I know it's tough that like the city, when we say the city and we're talking about the big bureaucratic structure that is our political and uh, all of that, that whole system, you spoke to people that were probably rooting for you, right? Like that were like, yeah, let's do it. You know, love this idea, building community. But then there's also the city, I'm putting air quotes up, that's also wanting, that's waiting for the $10 million real estate developers. So what, what is that dichotomy? Like why are, th are there just like some people who really care about community and some people who just want money or what's happening there? Philadelphia runs off of real estate taxes. That's the largest part of how they get their revenue. And so if I'm a small organization and I say, hey, can I have that property? And another developer say, hey, I want that property and I'm going to develop it and I'm going to uh, make that a $300,000 property. And I'm an organization. I say, well, I just want to make a little farm. I just want a community farm. Mm -hmm. So he's going to say, <laughs> <laughs> and what they're going to do is they're going to say, what works best for the city in terms of real estate taxes? Nonprofits don't have to pay real estate taxes. And that's just going to be a community garden. Probably that'll look better as a dollar store or a Rite Aid. And so you have to fight with the idea that the, the city needs money as much as they need fresh fruit and vegetables and um, access to clean air. So it depends on whose district you're in. Uh. And that's another thing in Philadelphia. The city has given the city council members so much authority and they live these lifetime sentences on city council because right currently in Philadelphia, they can serve as many terms as they want. And I don't know, I, I don't know how often you vote, but most time when people vote, they see a, a familiar name on the ballot next to an unfamiliar name. Despite how much the person whose name looks familiar, despite how little they've done for the community, they will a lot of times vote for that person just simply because they recognize the name. Mm -hmm. That name recognition goes a long way mm -hmm. here in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to try to run against somebody who's been an incumbent for 10, 15 years, good luck. Mm -hmm. So right now there's a question on the Philadelphia ballot. I'm not in Philadelphia, so I can't vote. But I hope those Philadelphians do something about those lifetime sentences that the city council members are serving and vote against letting them continue to do that and vote on that statute that's coming out that limits their services to two terms. That's coming out in November. And this gives new blood an opportunity to do something for the city because currently Philadelphia is for sale. And most of these properties are being bought by people who live out of the city. People from Delaware, New Jersey, and New York own more real estate in the city than Philadelphians do. For me, that's a problem, especially because we're the ones taking care of the property once it starts to deteriorate. We're the ones that's cleaning and getting the um, the fines for the littering. You know, if, if, if 
a property owner bought a property in Philadelphia, hopes to flip it, but lives in New York. That property is getting dumped on. That property is being uh, becoming an eyesore, and the company is. I mean, and the community is suffering. But the person in New York who's getting money off that property, they don't really see what the effect of their purchase made to that community. There needs to be more people in the community owning the property that they live next to. Mm. There's people right now, right now, who own a twin, who cannot get the city to sell them that vacant lot that's been sitting next to their house for 15 years that they've been tending to, gardening on for 15 years because it costs $120,000, which is more than the value of that property, more than the value of their own home. People, I mean, you know about gentrification. People are living in homes that, okay, prime example, my dad lives on the block that where his house is worth um, at maybe $85,000, and there's a $300,000 twin being built across the street from him. So, you know, that makes the other property values go up. And so now the people in that community can no longer afford their property tax. So now they get driven out of their community. And so now then you'll see houses sitting vacant until another person can come and take care of that. I mean, come and take that property. But while it's sitting, it's deteriorating. And depending on how long it sits, it starts to fall apart. It starts to lean on the next building. And then you have that being replicated throughout the city over and over and over again. And then the more poor communities where there aren't a lot of traffic and there isn't a lot of um, real estate interest, you'll see blocks abandoned. Not just, uh, you know, that missing tooth thing I told you about where there's like three or four abandoned homes on the block. But you'll literally see an entire street block abandoned. And yet you'll see at least 40 people homeless sleeping down in um, uh, the stations mm-hmm. on... 15th and market Mm -hmm. and for me to me it feels like something is that picture don't 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 look right if you got all these empty homes and people homeless that bothers my heart and so what can we do about that so um we had asked for property and the city wasn't anting up off the property they weren't making it easier to uh, acquire property so we a bunch of us got together and said let's start a land bank um, Maria, what is, what is a land bank? A land bank is um, is a place where you can put <clears throat> properties that are for sale in the city all in one place. So people can competitively look at the same properties that are available and make, um, make interest inquiries about the property. And depending on how many inquiries are on the property, the city is supposed to look at your financial ability and um, all these different uh, things like um, how close are you to the property and what's your ability to take care of it. They're supposed to look at all these different um, things to see if you are a viable uh, owner to transfer to instead of blindly selling to whoever has the highest bid. So it's a way to make it more fair to people who don't have a chance financially to put a bid on a property that they live directly next to. Hmm. So it's it's a it's a bank of all the city owned properties, but it's supposed to be a bank that everybody has fair access to hmm. instead of just those who can afford to buy property. Mm-hmm. And because the regular market is for people who can afford to buy property. A land bank is supposed to be a little bit more controlled in terms of it's supposed to be a little bit more fair in the distribution and just letting people know what property is available. Because a lot of times people don't even know 
that the property next to them that they've been taking care of is now for sale. Mm-hmm. Or you'll have a nonprofit who's sitting in a building and don't even know that it's sold from up under them. Which happened in Darby. The organization that was in there, that building for years got that building sold from up under them for a dollar. That building got sold to SEPTA for a dollar. So, um, <clears throat> the land bank was started by some um, concerned people and it was um, sponsored by Maria Keone Sanchez. And we wrote that bill. The language that we used to write that bill was to give power to the people so that people could, um, regular people, nine to five, um, people who are living in below the poverty line or people who are even middle class can have opportunity for land acquisition. Because we do believe that land ownership is one of the best ways out of poverty. Mm. But if you do not offer that opportunity to people who live in the community in which that land is being sold, mm. it's not really, I think, leveling the playing field. Yeah. So when we brought the land bank language to city council, uh, the president of city council changed the language in such a way to still give uh power to the city council member on whether or not to transfer that particular parcel. So still, city council has the last say about who gets the land in Philadelphia. Now why wouldn't a city council member want someone in the community to own the lot that's right next door to their house? Because if a developer says, hey, I will turn that instead of uh, that being a little community garden that won't bring you no real estate uh, money. I'll turn that into um, a duplex or a condo that will sell for a quarter of a million dollars and that'll give me a tax abatement for 10 years though. But in 10 years, that will be a nice profit generating uh, piece of land for your for your city and it'll make the property value go up, not only here, but let me build over there too and we'll bring the property value up. And then, and then displace the people, a lot of people. Because now, the, now my property taxes in 2011 that were $200, now is $700, and my cost of living is going up, everything's going up, but my income hasn't gone up. Mm-hmm. Milk going up, eggs going up, my check the same. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? And those are the people who, who was looking out for those people, who they go to work every day. Some of them don't have no jobs, but people who's trying to kind of climb out of the hole and most of the time, these people are not asking for no handouts. They're not asking for no welfare. They're asking for an opportunity to be landowners, property owners. They bought property. They saved up. They, they, they own that land now. And then they cannot sustain it because the city would prefer to sell other pieces of that community to outsiders who can pay a higher, uh, a higher tax. And, I mean, I mean America is, a you know... We run on um, trade. You know, we we're about money and commerce and all that, and I understand that. But the land bank was supposed to be a safe place from commerce and from that. Where you know we know an auction house wants the highest bid, but can there be maybe the smaller auction house that will take the bids of? We'll listen to everybody's bids and then take into consideration, well, you live right next door to that property Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were asking for, a a level playing field for the people who will never be able to to build a bid $23 million on Broad Street. Mm -hmm. Temple, you and, yeah, Temple, you got Broad Street. Go ahead, Temple, that's all yours. But can we have, you know, um, Hunter Street? Because, you, you know, you don't need Hunter Street also. 
a lot of them, you know, Philadelphia is a land grab right now, and there's a lot of uh, organizations that don't have to pay taxes. So when you see organizations and uh, universities that buy homes in low-income neighborhoods, and they don't have to pay taxes on those homes, and they buy up whole blocks, and then that whole block gets changed and gentrified, and nobody in that community looks like nobody else in the community before that community got there. Now it's causing dissension in the, in the community. People are starting to feel away about Temple University. They feel away about their new neighbors. This is not how love and brotherhood and stuff um, is born. You have neighbors who don't speak to each other because I'm mad that you made my taxes go up. That's really a, that's what's happening all over the city. I get calls all the time from people who are saying, you know, um, there is trash in this area. Uh, what can we do about the tires in this area? Because uh, it got to one point where we were working with organizations collecting tires, getting tires out of the vacant homes, off of the abandoned properties, because the auto mechanics were dumping hundreds of tires overnight in locations, uh, you know, almost in tandem. So like one day you would see no tires and then the next day you would see 40 right there, 700 right there, 30 right there the next day. Hmm. And you know, those aren't people, you know, bringing the tires off their cars. These are organizations and these are companies. And so um, we were feeling like there's so much that we can do about that. Uh, so we started telling people, you know, if you find anything about tires, you hear anything about tires, let us know. We want to try to build a coalition of people that's trying to get tires together so we can do something instead of throwing them in the river. So I spent a lot of time trying to get people to divert their trash out of the river, out of the vacant, and try to consider maybe building something called inertia. And so uh, in that process, I started looking for land. And in my frustration of finding land that I can afford or that we could afford, we created a land bank. But then in the final days of that land bank getting passed, uh, city council changed some language that gave them back the power that we were trying to share with the people. So now the land bank is pretty much, it's a land bank that looks just like the general population um, real estate uh, pool. You, the land bank houses cost the same amount as the houses in the regular pool of houses. And I don't see any responses coming any quicker. We've made inquiries that we haven't gotten responses to. We don't know who's in charge of it, who runs it, who where's the transparency it's almost as if we birthed this baby and somebody snatched the baby out of our hand and we don't know where that child is at hmm. um we hear we hear things about the baby from time to time but <laughs> uh, we haven't seen any pictures we haven't seen anything that any growth of what that land bank accomplished now you you started building something though right we started building something we were on the radio in 2013 saying that we wanted land this is after we worked on the land bank and we were saying the land bank wasn't going to help us and um we had tried to purchase purchase property from the city but there were so many liens against a lot of these properties we couldn't afford it so we went on the radio and we we're talking about what we were trying to do and a gentleman called up to the radio and he said i have property that i can give you and and on the radio in front of everyone. Wow. He, and um, he said, I'm going to call you. I, I gave him my number on, on, on the radio. And he called me and left me a message 
which I have on my phone to this day, because it was just a, it was an amazing day. He called and it was in August, and he said, "I have a property for you." And um, I don't know why the city won't just give you a property. It sounds like wonderful what you're trying to do. Oh my god! But I tell you what, I got two properties you can have. Wow! So the next day, I drove to his house. I wrote up. I got a piece of paper and I wrote up his little agreement. That went because at the time when I got, went to his house, he said, "You know, I want to give you these properties, but I can't locate the deeds right now. They're in here somewhere." But so we wrote up an agreement, and as of that day, August twenty third, uh, two thousand thirteen, I became a landowner. Where were these properties? Forty first and Lancaster was the first one. Six seventy five North Forty first Street was the first one. Wow, pretty central. And it's like almost four thousand square feet. Who is this guy? How did he own these places? He, um, Mr. His name is Mr. Miller, Mr. Thomas L. Miller. He was a re- regular citizen of Philadelphia who listened to talk radio. And he owned many properties in the city. Um, and he had two that he wanted to give us. Simple as that. And so <clears throat> in my excitement, I went to go look at both of the properties. 333 North uh, 62nd Street was a small twin property. It was 800 square feet. So I knocked on the door of the adjacent because, you know, I told you it was twin. So this vacant lot had a twin next to it. So I knocked on the door and say, hey, I'm your new neighbor to that vacant lot that's sitting next to you. Just wanted you to know. At the time, they had their pool on, on the property. I didn't mind. I wasn't doing anything with the property no time soon. But I just want to let them know that the property had changed hands and well, I'll probably see you soon. And my idea is to put a tiny home here. So I'll be back to talk to you about that. See how you feel. And then we set our sights on 41st Street. 41st Street is uh, 4,000 square feet in the middle in the heart of West Philadelphia. It's uh, in the lower uh, Lancaster uh, community, lower Lancaster Avenue. Lola is what they call it, lower Lancaster Avenue. Uh, And the People's Emergency Center runs that corridor. In Philadelphia, different community organizations are in charge of different neighborhoods called corridors. And so our first responsibility was to get everybody in that corridor to know who we were. So we started going to all the doors, organizations, to anybody who lived in that community. The stores, the corner stores, giving them flyers, letting them know who we were, what we were about to do on that property, what our intentions were. We started having film viewings to let people see what earthships looked like, let them ask questions. Um, it was to make sure that we didn't just bogart that community mm-hmm. and we didn't just bum rush that community without mm-hmm. permission. And we were bringing something in convention, unconventional and we wanted input. And, and we didn't want them to say, Get out of here with that. That is some wisdom right there. I mean, I'm curious what kind of reactions you got, but just for anyone who has a vision of, of doing something out of the ordinary that you believe is important for a community, like, I feel like here's a good lesson, you know, just before you do anything, just go meet the people. Meet the people, because depending on who you're talking to, you may be creating a problem for them, and you think you're coming with a great solution, Depending on their perspective, you can be an invader. And that's exactly what happened when we went there. We got to the meeting and people had such um they were so ill informed. They thought compost was how horse manure that just smelled all day and that we were gonna be dumping smelly poop on the property that they were gonna smell when they walked past. They thought that the tires um they thought the tires were going to poison people. They were concerned about off-gassing. They didn't call it off-gassing. They were very smart, though, to 
think about that kind of thing. But they were concerned that the tires would poison people. Um, some uh, One of the neighbors actually called the cops on us because he didn't make it to any of the meetings. And he saw us putting tires on the property and he thought we were dumpers. Mm. And um, we was trying to explain to him. I was trying to show him my deed. No, we're not dumpers. We belong here. He said, I don't care. I don't like the way it looks. And he called the cops on us. But luckily, we, we had already talked to the police. Police already knew who we were. So when he called the cops, he's like, oh, love, love, and love. Leave them alone. He told them. <laughs> the cops told him to leave us alone. But, um, you know, that. But when we, when we sat and talked to him, because we later invited him for lunch, because he's a concerned citizen. He walked down the street to come and call the cops on us. So we invited him to lunch and asked him what was the problem. He said his problem was people coming into the community saying they're going to do something and not keeping their word. And so uh, he said people say they're going to do stuff for the community and they come and they exclude us out of everything. And those houses and stuff that they said they want to build, I can't afford to live in those houses. So you're coming to pr- promise the community all these things, but they can't take part in it. Oh, we want to build a Whole Foods here, but you can't afford this food here. So it's going to cost you a whole check. Mm-hmm. So, um, he was con- he was concerned that what we were trying to do was not going to include the community. But he hadn't been to any. Of the he meetings. hadn't been to any meetings. But you know, there's going to be people who don't who are going to miss a meeting, and sure. that's why you have to be consistent. Sure. We did community canvassing in that community for two years, and we were from from the city council member down to the prostitute knew what we were doing. And when I say hmm. prostitute, I'm literally meaning the prostitute that gave two dollars every day and gave her water every day knew what we were doing. Wow. Because why? She might one day be a mayor. Just because she a prostitute today don't mean anything. Hmm. So she needs to be informed what's going on in her community also. Um we first got in that community, we noticed that it was an open M open air drug market. Meaning the drug dealers serve drugs outside. Some blocks you go to, the drug dealers serve drugs in the store. Or there's a drug house on the store. 41st in Lancaster, so bold and bodacious, they do it right outside. Wow. In fact, we found drug packs on the property, um, pills on the property, needles on the property. Um, but it's a heavy drug community. So uh, one of the first things we wanted to do was bring our drug and alcohol community friends to that area. So and so we started bringing church members and um, Southwest New Stock to that community to let people know we were trying to revitalize the community, not just build something here that y'all can't have nothing, no part of. We started, we were telling people we wanted to grow food, so we started having workshops there. We also gave away food on the property. We gave away, we, we hooked up with other organizations that grew food, and we gave away food on the property. Fresh peppers, and um, we went to, we went to Whole Food and Trader Joe's and got them that good food and bought it to the homeless people to eat. Why? Because they don't need to eat oodles and noodles and the sandwiches. They need to eat good food too. And so we was bringing the the best of what life has to offer to the people who probably would never see that stuff. You know, somebody who probably would never pay for no peppercorn, uh, you know, <laughs> um, dressing. They should be able to taste it though, see what it's like. They probably would never go get no ribeye. If y'all on the property eating ribeye, share some with the homeless guy too. He should have some too. Hmm. So, you know, there's this guy, they called him the mayor. He was like, somebody came around the neighborhood all the time. And so the mayor introduced us to homeless people, you know, just the people who were on the street, who spent most of the time on the street. So then you had people on the street just looking out for us. 
Oh, Rashida, I seen somebody dumping something on your property. Oh, you want their license plate number? So this is how you get the community involved. And so we worked two years doing that. And then in 2015, so before we got to 2015, and while we're getting this property ready, you know, we're getting the community involved and we're getting the community prepared for us. Um, we're doing newspaper articles. So every so often I'll Google the address to see like if there's any new news articles out about us to put on our website. And one day I'm Googling, it's not one day, in October I'm Googling and I see the property on sale at 675 North 41st Street. I see it on sale for $100,000. I'm like, this must be a mistake. So I erased everything and Googled again and I see our property, 675 North 41st Street on sale for $100,000. So then that made me panic. I Googled my other address, my second property, and that one is on sale for $50,000. And I start to um, get really upset because I, that's my property. I'm not selling it. Who's selling my property? So the first thing I thought was somebody stole my property. So I called Mr. Miller, the man who donated me the property. Mr. Miller, somebody's selling my property. You know anything about this? Oh, no, Rashida. What is that? I don't know nothing about that. This went on for months. He telling me he don't know anything about it and me trying to figure out who stole or who. I keep saying stole because in my mind, when I saw it on sale, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Somebody stole it. Um, I tracked down the person who put it on sale and come to find out it's a developer. Mr. Miller had sold him three properties. Two of them, the two that he gave, had given me and then a third property. He had sold my properties for a dollar a piece to this developer. Who in turn was selling it for a hundred thousand dollars and fifty thousand dollars, and so why? Why did he sell it for a dollar? To the second, I don't know what that conversation was like between that developer and Mr. Miller, because they both have been deceitful, and and we're in litigation right now because of it. We won our case against Mr. Miller for fraudulent transfer of that deed to that third party, and but we didn't go after him for no money. We didn't. I don't want nothing from Mr. Miller. I don't want to hurt him no kind of way. I don't want no judgment against him or his property. He can keep all the things that he have. I just wanted it to be on record that what he did was wrong, that that was a fraudulent transfer, that he gave away something that he sold to us first. He sold us that property because technically you can't give a property away. You got to put like a value on it. So he sold it to us for a penny. So he, I gave him a penny for each of the properties. We're in litigation right now, so I, I, I got to be careful for what I say. But ultimately, this uh, developer testified that Mr. Miller gave him the property. Mr. Miller sought him out and offered him the properties. We're in litigation to see whether or not that, prop that story is true. Mr. Miller did not respond to requests for litigation. He is um, no longer uh, a defendant because uh, we won a case against him. So now we're just going against the developer. While you're in litigation... Are you, you have to stay away from the property? You can't do any work on it? I can't do any work on it because it's in his name now. And it's considered his property. What we, what we were able to do was get it off the market. He had to take it off the market. The developer. Correct. Um, and uh, so he did that. But right now it's considered his. It's still his. And I don't go there um, because it makes me cry. Are you familiar with uh, La Finquita, the garden in Kensington? For years, they were, they they built up this garden for years, big big community hub, 
and just recently they lost it to a developer. Same thing happened to North Philly Peace Park when they was trying to do their um, uh, earthship across the street from the projects. I went over there and I told them, y'all don't have permission to build here. It's going to be a problem down the line. And it was on the news, uh, Philadelphia Public, uh, the Philadelphia Housing Authority owned that property. And they lost all the work that they did. Philadelphia, though, was so generous, though, to give them another property on another somewhere else. But... When you put all that blood, work, sweat, and tears, and you build up that community trust, and it's it's like you're losing. It's not. It's more. It's more than just losing a building or losing a piece of property, because you, you sow into the community, into the people who live there, into the idea that this place can be better than what it is, and to have that taken from you, that is the devastating part. Because it's easy. You can buy a property anywhere. I could. I could build an earthship in my backyard right now. This is not about that. This is about other people, not just me. And those people are connected to me. So, yeah, it's me too. But ultimately, if, if you can't do it and I can, that's something wrong to me. It should be we all should be able to do it. We should all have the same access and ability. And right now, it's not like that. So, um, yeah, so if a, if a developer has interest in a property and they say what we're going to build here is going to be worth so much more than this community garden, if you our city who runs off of funds derived from property taxes that might look a little bit more pleasing to you. And if you don't think about trees and you don't really care so much about emissions and you don't look at that part, that, that, you know, the, the developer's money may be like a, a no brainer to you. What's on the ground there right now? Our foundation. We started a foundation there. It's a U shape. Actually, it's a bit of a square shape because the city wanted the city wanted it to look a little bit more like a city structure. Mm-hmm. Earthship has round uh, corners. It doesn't have corners. These are be round. Yeah. But we made we made corners. This building has corners for the city. Yeah. To look more like a city building. So we started the structure in terms of we laid down the the foundation where you can kind of get an idea of what where the rooms are going to be. We started that process. The tires. The tires. Laying down the tires. Ram the earth tires. We had people from all over the world, literally, come here and ran those tires. Ireland, uh, Rhode Island, um, Mississippi, uh, um, Maryland, um, Jersey. Uh, we had people, they, they just wanted to be part of the first Earthship in Philly. These are the enthusiasts I was talking about earlier. The people who heard about Michael Reynolds, who know about the Earthship building, and would think it's really cool to see one in a city. Because if you look online, you won't see one in a hood. You won't see one in a city with like cars driving past and city buildings next to it. And I feel like a structure like that would do well in the city because the city is more than just buildings like that. There's like off skirts, there's you know vacant buildings and it can be retrofitted and it can be changed to look a little bit more like a city-fied city. It don't have to look, you know, like a ranch style house. There's modifications that can be done. But the idea though is to think what can I do to get rid of this trash yeah. and all these vacant buildings at the same time create some kind of job creation for this community the the earthship is a, a construction that is very easy to learn there are children on earthship yeah. earthship yeah. building sites it's very user friendly and so people who have low skills and who are trying to maybe get back into um, being employable because uh the city says 10% of the, of the citizens are unemployable. 
these people who don't have necessarily have skills, they can learn weatherization, they can learn um, how to put in um, a planter, they can learn how to garden, they can learn about our values and how to put in solar panels. And then these trade skills, they can get jobs. And so we are trying to not just put a house in the hood, we're also trying to build something, yes. build a community that's based on, back down to the foundation of fresh fruits and vegetables. What do it take for people to be um, happy and they feel good? Their neighbors be feeling happy and good. Kids be outside playing and, you know, just bringing love back to the community through a building that we all help build together that now is taking care of us. This house don't take care of me. I take care of it. Sure. But the Earthship, mm. it provides so much for you. It's alive. It's a living, breathing thing like a community should be. And a lot of these communities are walking dead. And for us, if we walk past those communities, you are part of it. You, you are part of that demise. If you don't do anything to breathe life back into it, you're, you, you've helped it die also. Well, what's the vision for the Earthship? Was it meant to be a greenhouse or was it meant no, to be... No, this Earthship is going to be a fully functioning, six-design principle Earthship that's going to be able to heat and cool itself, grow food off the grid, contain its own sewage, contain its own um, electricity, provide all things for itself, feed a family of four comfortably. So um, it's going to be a, a home It's going to be a family. home. Okay, so it's going to start out as our office space until we can put a family in there who needs a home. Wow. Our idea is to be able to create homes that look beautiful for people who came out of shelters and who came out of, you know, Section 8 houses. This could be a good first family home because your rent not that much because you I mean, not your rent, your uh, utilities are not that much because you're paying less than $100 a year for utilities because you're getting so much off the, off the, um, the sun. And then your grocery bills down because you're eating more fresh fruits and vegetables and you can grow them in your own house. And so now some of that income can be diverted towards, you know, getting your credit better, saving for your kids' college. You know, they can start diverting some of that money that they used to put into the house that don't take care of them into a house that takes care of them. It, it's, it solves so many challenges. So many people. challenges. And um, unfortunately, like right now, if you lived in a shelter and you were looking to get out of the shelter into your first home, your options are limited. Your options are limited because there's not a lot of people who rent to people who lived in a shelter. There's not a lot of people who rent to people who live in Section 8 homes because they're afraid they're going to destroy their property. There's a lot of discrimination in housing. Put it that way. There's yeah. a, I, I know because I worked trying to help people who were in shelters find housing. Mm. And it's very difficult to deal with, um, to get out of, from um, up under a slumlord. One who won't come and fix things, but they keep getting that $1,700 check from uh, the city for you to live there, they, and they won't come out and fix your heat. So, you don't got to come fix my heat. My house takes care of me. It heats me every day. You know, so that's, that's the kind of thing. All your, your stamps, Trump is got an attitude this week he don't want to <laughs> he wants to freeze government so what you know you don't have to worry about that you know you got fish in your pond we're trying to create people where they are self-sufficient and mm -hmm. self-sustainable mm -hmm. and can take care of their communities and see um, a benefit to it this right here when you speak these words to people like I hear it and I'm like yes and I think a lot of people would be like yes but I'm curious when you would speak these words to people in that community what reaction would you get? Oh, that's nice. Oh, okay. Because they are in crisis mode. If I sit here and say to you right now, my children don't have no food. 
and you sit and you say to me, Earthship, sustainability. I'm sitting there like, all right, uh, but so my kids are hungry right now. It's so far away. I can't think about that right now. I'm in I'm, I'm in crisis mode. Wow. I gotta feed my kids today. I gotta I might steal something. All right, and you're talking about something that I don't even see for myself. Wow. Half of the words you're using, I don't even understand. I got an eighth grade education, and that's at best in some communities. A lot of them are illiterate, so you try, you're handing out pamphlets people can't read. So they're you after the meeting, half of them are on the floor. Yeah. It's a certain amount of education that has to be done to help a person who don't know what they need. Mm. And so if if I if I want to bring you a solution, I have to first address the things that you know that you need. So if you know that you need right now food for your children what love love and love do we buy groceries for people so that i'm so glad you brought that up because i wanted to ask you like the earthship project was really just one side one little face of love loving love mm-hmm. what is the other work that you all are involved with yeah now you really gonna need that five hours of tape <laughs> <laughs> love is intangible but is in everything. So we got our hands in a little bit of everything. Um, but we try to compartmentalize it into programming. So one of our uh, areas that we work in with the youth is called the de-escalation room. This is our attempt to bring peace, meditation, yoga to uh, young people who are violent and who keep getting suspended from school. And so what we do, we go into schools that have high rates of violence, suspensions, um, expulsions, uh, people being violent against teachers, and we build a room inside that school where a child can come, hear some music, hear some saxophone, or some really cool calm down music, sit on some yoga mats. We had a yogi that she's come and she's teach um, to the class. Uh, we have art up on the wall both famous art and art from unknown people because a lot of the young people had never seen Picasso or Rembrandt because they won't go to the, they won't go to the museum they will probably won't open a book but there go a picture of one a print of one and um, we had um, Michael um, Yamashita he was one of the National Geographic contributors give us pictures oh, breathtaking pictures landscapes of uh, mountains and water and just things that would bring peace you know, um, we had cleansing products that were made from plants and we had fresh fruit and vegetables in the water and water in the room. Um, music that we had gotten from um, uh, New Phonics, music that was specifically designed to help bring down your heart rate. Uh, we had earphone, I mean, uh, earplugs for sensory deprivation because I, I, we noticed that if you put in earplugs, after 15 minutes, people start talking quieter because their stress makes them talk so loud. Hmm. They turned the TV down because they didn't realize how loud their world had become to drown out the noises in their head. Hmm. So we would do these in these rooms for for young people so that they don't after school fight because they was mad all day. They had all day to let that simmer, whatever argument they had. They had the whole classroom time to simmer that argument to where now outside they're going to fight about it. Whereas if there's a problem in school, if you send that child right to the room immediately, we can work with that child so that by the time they leave that room, they're not still trying to fight after school. And therefore, there is no suspension. The teacher don't have to stop teaching class and be, you know, the disciplinarian. And uh, that child has gotten some fresh fruit and vegetables and some water. And sometimes they need socks or lotion. Um, Sometimes they need more. 
Sometimes they need intervention at home because you'll notice children have, they have other issues. And then that's when we created um, the purpose wheel where we followed some of those children home. Meaning if there was a child who we noticed needed, they weren't being taken care of properly, they were being neglected. We knew there was an issue at home, obviously. They, they smelled, they, they were always hungry, their mouth was dry, you know, things like that. Their hair's not brushed. We had permission from the um, school, we'll send a letter to the parent and ask permission to come to the home and do some intervention there. A lot of times the moms, they need health coaching. We do health coaching with the parents or you get to the home and it's in such disarray. We've, we've had horror stories, but you get to the home and then you see, you understand why the child is behaving that way in school. So suspending that child is not helping them because now they have to go to an empty house because their parents at work. You sending them to an empty house that they want to sit on the video games all day. Um, so many different stories, but uh, the idea is to keep that child from having to come to school and be punished for what's going on at home. So we follow the ones that were in great distress home and, and, and work with their parents. So if their parents were in financial distress, we'll help them find jobs. We'll help them with groceries that month. We'll help them get connected with um, places that give away clothes and give away food. Um, some of them going in foreclosure. We help get them in contact with a foreclosure specialist. But we follow them home to see what the root of that problem is because no child comes to school wanting to fight for no reason. And a lot of times they're hungry. It, it, sometimes it's just, it's just that. They're just hungry. And so we bring in fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, so we started doing that for schools, homeless shelters, and um, that's the de-escalation room. We... We got approved to do that in every school in the Philadelphia school district. The problem is the schools can't afford us. So what we do is we fundraise to be able to offer that service for free to a school every year. If we don't raise enough money to sponsor a school, we'll do those services in pop-up places like homeless shelters or runaway shelters, and we'll do it for a timed, a certain amount of time, however much weeks we can do until our, our funds run out. And a lot of times that's like six to 12 weeks, depending on how many students come and we serve. Um, the other thing, we, we were doing something called Operation Olive Branch. This is our attempt to heal the, the division between the police and the community. When we first started Love, Love, and Love, there was a lot of people shooting cops, and we were hearing a lot about police brutality. And um, so one of, uh, actually one of my, my pastors, my pastor's um, ne nephews got shot by a police officer, Michael Brown. He got shot in Philadelphia by a police officer. And the anger was so high that we wanted to do something to dispel that anger because being angry at the whole police department don't make nothing better. And it was creating that, um, that, that, that uh, culture of no snitching, F the police. You know, if the police come through the neighborhood, they people throwing stuff at cars. And for me, that don't create a safe community. Because if you push the police out of the community, where now is like the law when you call up for some help? And so we started um, servicing the police. We would build de-escalation rooms in the police, um, uh, the police station. Because we felt like police who come out and hit people are stressed. They need to de-escalate. If they de-escalate before they come outside, they're not going to come outside hitting on citizens. A lot of them um, are traumatized, alcoholics, and because they don't go to 
therapy because they're afraid of the stigma, they take it out on criminals. And so if nobody's looking or nobody cares, punch that criminal in the face real quick. And, you know, so what? And so what we would do was we worked with the Police Ad Advisory Commission and Internal Affairs to find out which police stations had the lowest amount of police brutality in their community. We got all the numbers, but we would go see who had the lowest and then go give them a prize. Give them, um, we give them an award, the Crystal Award, uh, the Kindness, the Civilian Kindness Award for being nice to the citizens in that community. And the ones who had the worst, we go give them de-escalation services. So give them free counseling. We brought a massage therapist that come in and massage them. We have food out for them and wow. games, reading, a place like the music was really nice going in a corner and some officers was falling asleep. But we feel like, you know, saying F the police and being so mad at the police don't fix the problem. A person can um, be healed through love, then they can spread that love. And so we was trying to make people be nice to the cops again, so to speak. And so that's what Operation Olive Branch is. Where did this idea of a de-escalation room come from? Um, I came up with that idea when I was watching TV and I was hearing about all the kids. Um, it, it, it was a time in uh, like the late 2000s, 2007, 8, 9, where you would see a lot on TV about um, kids fighting in school and bringing it out into the streets. You would see flash mobs. It was called flash mobs when it would be like 100 kids on Broad Street fighting or stopping traffic. It was calling them flash mobs. But what was really happening was these kids was t hooking up with each other and they would say, okay, everybody meet on Broad Street. They'll meet on Broad Street with intentions to play and have a good time. But the thing in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods. And you can live on this block and that block next to you is your rival block. So if this block and this block all come together in one place, you got a bunch of rivals all in one spot. And so, yeah, fights do break out when, you know, enemies come together. But the intention was not to be a fight. It started out as like a good time, a party. It just grew out of control. But the way the media was spinning it, it was making it seem as if these young kids were going from neighborhood to neighborhood, terrorizing the neighborhood, knocking over cars and doing these kind of things. I've been a witness to young people coming out of school, fighting. It happens here every day. And we've, or as an organization, we've stopped fights in Philadelphia. I've had kids spit at my car and throw rocks at me because we're trying to stop a fight. I know what that looks like. But there's a difference between fights and kids who's rowdy trying to have a good time. And I think when you see a bunch of kids who's kind of tall nowadays, because these kids are really tall, having a good time, being rowdy, some of them smoking herbs, some of them got music, you know, pants kind of low, some people get scared. And so the media was reporting it in such a way that it was bringing fear. Mm. And so... As it usually does. As in, it's very good at it. It's become masters at it. And we did not want young African-American men and young African-American women and Latino women, because that's who was on the TV, being portrayed as um, going around uh, and terrorizing Temple students. Because I was a Temple student. And I was not scared of these kids, but they were robbing Temple students on the news. They were saying they were robbing Temple students. It would be one robbery, but they'd say the mob was robbing Temple students. And so our idea was to, my idea was to go from school to, how, how the escalation was born was, the idea was to go from school to school and put on a play to show how to de-escalate de a situation so that you don't end up in a fight. And then the idea was 
how about if people can come to like a station, like a mini station, where they, if they're really angry, they can come and they can sit at this station and type in their age, their size, and all of that. And then the computer printout would say, okay, eat more bananas, um, listen to this song. It, it was like a, a mini station that would help you relax. So it would automatically start playing the music for you. It would be stuff in water in there for you and good things to eat. And you can relax for a few minutes before you come back out and get back to school. And I was trying to price, how can I put a mini station in this in the schools and um, how, how much would an app cost? And so then ultimately we just decided the best way is to do it in real life. People don't like being touched anymore. Now we can touch children on their shoulders and bring back human touch. People don't like to talk and be in each other's face anymore. We can sit in these children's face and, and find out what's the matter with them. The station is nice, but it's a computer talking to you. We needed back that human interaction. So the room is designed to be a four-point place. So, so it's a room like this, but you go to each corner of the room for a different service. So as soon as you come in, you're getting your water and your vegetables and stuff. Because most of the time, people need their primary needs met first. So we give them their primary foods. Like you know, one corner of the room will one be... One corner, that, that, for that first corner of the room is your primary foods. Wow. Like, you know, lotion. You know, A child acts way different when they got some food in their belly and their skin feels good. We've seen dramatic, dramatic differences. I, 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 like I said, I could talk all day about that room, but primary foods, secondary foods. So the first thing they need is their, their immediate things taken care of. They have cuts or, you know... They have, um, they're hungry or thirsty. And then we have, um, the next corner is the breathing corner. Now, as you sat here and centered yourself, a lot of people don't know about meditation and how to center yourself. Me included. I told you, I'm just now reading a book about meditation right now to, to get more into it. But a lot of young people don't know about that. And so we came up with teaching young people how to breathe by making them blow balloons. And so they can play with the balloons after and they're still doing the breathing techniques. And that gets a lot of energy um, off of them. And also it teaches them about being aware of their breath, which comes to the next corner. And so now we're talking about why are you in this room in the first place? Breathe, take a breath, why are you in here? What did you do? What did they do to you? What's going on with you? And in this last corner is the purpose wheel. A lot of these young people who, in this corner, they tell us, you know, the corner that they came in that describes um, where we try to find it's a therapeutic corner where we try to find out why are they in the room uh what's their anger level what's going on at home from that corner they go to the next corner which is the purpose will corner where we discuss the purpose of their life a lot of the children that we talk to a lot of people in general they have no direction they have no clear idea of what they want to do with their life or the purpose of their life and so they're kind of like just bouncing in the wind going where the wind takes them instead of being focused. And so in the purpose wheel corner, we have a lot of things out to try to get an idea of what that young person likes or maybe to reintroduce them to something that they didn't even know they liked or were good at. Mm -hmm. And certain people gravitate to certain things. So if you're in a room and you see Legos over there and you heavy into building and maybe the purpose of your life is to be a builder but you never had Legos, we see young people going over to the Legos or young people specifically going to the books, going to the puzzles, and we have um, certain jobs we believe are uh, connected to those particular 
uh, items. So, for example, if you're a child that came to us and as we're working with you, we noticed that you heavy into playing with the Legos, we would start to uh, encourage you to use your hands more. We would get you in contact with builders and um, contractors and people who would uh, encourage you to use your hands in special ways. Uh, we would try to get your parents to see if you would go, want to go to a free art class. But we would try to see what about your hands is making you want to play with those Legos. Um, if you're heavy into drawing, you know, music, we got all kind of things. But what we're trying to do is to figure out or reconnect you back to something that you love and then help you find purpose in it. And maybe even that might be something that you can do to, to get a job. Because a lot of the young people who come in the room, they don't know what they want to be when they get it, when they get older. Which is really sad to say because it used to be a time where you ask a young person, what do they want to be when they get older? And they'll name like five or six different things. And we're seeing now a lot of young people coming in and they're not saying anything. Hmm. Or they're all saying the same thing, I want to be a rapper. Hmm. You know, we, the imagination is gone. Um, the, the, the possibilities have not been given to them that you can be you can you can be an engineer a lot of them have not heard that word and so it's a reconnection to the possibilities of their purpose in that last corner so you have the beautiful vision of a de-escalation room how does it go from being a vision to being actualized you go from school to school we first started in Robert Morris um, in North Philly and what you have to start with is a principal, a principal that believes that that kind of thing will work. So we went to a lot of schools, but the principals didn't believe in the theories of music therapy, of food versus mood, of you know human touch and interaction, of breathing, bringing down your heart rate. They don't understand those concepts, so they didn't see the value in them. But we did find there were some principals who on their own tried to find unconventional ways of changing their schools and who were really all about it, but they couldn't afford us. And so then they went and turned to, okay, we can help you, but only we can only be here for a certain amount of time because we're is on our dime now. And we want to be here for a long time, but since you can't afford it and we can't afford to stay here, here go a little taste. Mm -hmm. So we were doing like pop-ups at schools and, yeah. and if the school couldn't afford us, we'd go to shelters because I was working in shelters and I saw the need because a shelter is like a school in that you have a bunch of people from all over the city in one building trying to get along for a certain amount of time. And from four to 12, these people are all in this one building and they're all strangers and they all gotta eat in the same place and take showers in the same place and you have to create a community in which people are being respected, they're loving one another, they're not stealing from one another, they're eating the vegetables, cause you know, we have graham crackers, but we got vegetables too, we got apples too, so you know, we're trying to recreate like a good loving environment in the shelter in places where it's not. So um, you have to fi first find the leader has to be in line with that vision or see the value and the merit in it. But unfortunately, a lot of the schools don't have the budget for that kind of thing. And so we took on that, co that cost. So our, our, our availability to do it is not often because we don't have a lot of dollars. Mm -hmm. Had we had more dollars, we could stay in the building mm -hmm. and be there for the whole school year, which is the way the room was designed to be functional for 181 days, five days a week, with somebody in the room at all times, because a lot of schools don't have a school nurse anymore. So we had, like, the room is specifically designed to handle a lot of needs of the school, but the schools, they're, they're losing their nurse budget, they're losing their guidance counselor budget, so it was like, 
going to a place that needs your services but can't afford you, what do you do? Well, you know, I didn't even put it together. I knew we had this conversation scheduled weeks ago, and I didn't even put it together when I did something this past Thursday. Uh, one of my jobs is I go into daycare centers and I, I teach mindfulness classes with yoga and breathing and dancing to the little three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds. And I was at this one called Child Space West on Wyalusing Avenue. Um, that's a, yeah, sort of like 48th and, and Lancaster, right around there. And then I'm just riding my bike around there and I come upon Elaine Locke. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I'm just like, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna walk in. So I walk into the school, I didn't know anything about it. And I'm walking down the hallway and this woman with red hair gives me a great smile, makes eye contact, beautiful smile, and and then we just pass each other. And then I go into the office and I tell them, hey, you know, I, I just, I'm a teacher and I teach classes with mindfulness and yoga and movement. And uh, I was wondering if you, you had any room in your schedule for something like that. And they go, get on the phone, they say, Miss Evans, can you come to the office? So in walks the woman with the red hair, who smiled at me. Bless the Lord. <laughs> and when we go sit in her office. Wow. She is a community coordinator for this school. It's an elementary school. And it's one of 12 community schools in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you know mm -hmm. about. And they have a de-escalation room, mm -hmm. which she used those exact words. And when she said that, I thought, you know, that those words sound familiar. I've heard that before because mm -hmm. I read it on your website mm -hmm. and she told me all about it mm -hmm. she didn't go into as much detail as you just did but she was basically saying like it works wonders mm -hmm. amazing wonders and I guess because now there's this initiative called the community school program they've got 12 they're hoping to be up to like 23 by next let me year. pause right here I'm yeah. gonna say this I'm gonna say this on here on here okay on. we went to the school district with a de-escalation room idea when Arlene, Ack Dr. Arlene Ackerman was a supervisor and she was a superintendent of the schools. Oh yeah, okay, I saw that name. And we got approved to go into every school in Philadelphia with our de-escalation room. There were no schools in Philadelphia that picked up our program because they said they couldn't afford our program. So like I said, we did the de-escalation room for free in a lot of schools. The de-escalation room that you see now was funded and sponsored. Someone gave those people money to do their de-escalation room, which is why they're able to do it now in Philadelphia. But we came to Philadelphia almost 10 years ago with that concept. And we've been working that concept not only in schools, but in shelters and in um, runaway facilities for, for youth and in prisons. Had we had the funds that, 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 the, organiz that the, the community schools have now, they was given a substantial amount of funds to do that work. Had we had those funds to do that, we would have, Philadelphia would have de-escalation rooms in every school. And we believe a lot of those schools wouldn't have been closed, that got closed. But we have been trying to get the de-escalation room in Philadelphia way before it actually finally got here. And the biggest reason was finances. So... These community schools that are instituting this de-escalation room, that was inspired. They're standing on your shoulders in a way? Uh, I, don't, I don't never want to say that. 
I don't ever want to say that because I don't believe there's nothing new under the sun. Because yeah. I didn't come up with that idea. Sure. I, that I came up with that idea by thinking of all the different theories that I had heard and studied and putting them in one place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just never heard anybody saying it in Philadelphia before I did. And when we got approved to do it in the schools, we were the only organization on that list that was offering that service. So I'm not here saying that they're standing on my shoulders. I will say that we uh, laid the foundation for something like that to be accepted here. Yeah. And it must be a you know great feeling of It's incredible because ultimately it don't matter who brung it or who said it. The youth get the services. Yes. And the fact that somebody put money behind that, that just go to show you. Like sometimes people just need somebody to get behind their vision. If somebody if somebody believes in you and they can put money behind your vision, that can be the difference between, you know, a dream dying and a dream deferred and a dream coming to life. And whoever funded the the community schools and made a decision to say, you know what, a de escalation room does have value and put money behind that, kudos bless the Lord and bless that person's life because it took that person to see something bigger than what was directly in front of them. You can't see health. Health is something that's in the future because mm. we're all in a state of trying to get healthy. Mm. So whoever said yes to that saw the value of uh, investing in a, a youth more than just their mind, but also their spirit and you know their, their intellectual health, their environmental health and all those things. So, I, I, my prayer is that there's more de-escalation rooms like in daycares. When we started de-escalation room, we wanted to see it in places of high stress. So we tried to put one in Einstein Hospital because every time we saw the news, people was getting shot, was going to Einstein. So I, we were thinking, you know, I can't imagine the stress and the trauma that those nurses and the people in the emergency room have when you have to do surgery on young people who who got shot through their window and young people who's being abused the thing that, that you see on the news it just felt like a lot of those traumas were going to Einstein so we worked for almost a year trying to get in Einstein to offer a place where the nurses can come and de-escalate but the idea is that that room don't just work for children that room uh should mirror the community, but it don't. The, the community don't look like that. So we cre- you can create a space outside of the community to get that. The, the, the world should be loving. People should ask you, what do you want to do with your life? People should offer you water and, and fresh fruits and vegetables. You not shouldn't have to go to a supermarket for um, bus, buses out your community to get some fresh food. So we're trying to offer these things in one place to people who don't have access to it. And we felt the emergency room nurses, they're in there 12, 16 hours. A lot of them sleep there. So it would be good to have a de-escalation room in the hospital. We haven't got, they, they haven't responded to us about that yet. But just, you know, following up with people when you're trying to do something and then getting financial support is very difficult. And then trying to pr- present an idea to some people that sounds like, <clears throat> sounds different than um, the institution, the institutionalized way of doing things. You need some person who thinks, who thinks radically or who thinks outside the box to say yes. And so it took all this time for Philadelphia to, to, to financially back the de-escalation room. But we got approved and we were talking about that years before um, that, that came to life. Did it become clear to you at some point though that 
what you were doing with the de-escalation rooms was being seen and heard and learned about by folks in the government and in other schools? Well, when we the, the school d- district put out an RFP. What is that? It's like a request for proposals for because um, Philadelphia was trying to do something called um, Renaissance schools, and they were trying to change schools here in Philadelphia and make them more um, academically performing because we had a lot of Title I poor performing schools. And so our organization said, hey, this is our proposal. And we bought de-escalation room to the proposal. We had charter schools bringing in proposals. There were proposals from organizations all over Philadelphia. And school districts said, hey, listen, all you nonprofits and organizations out there, come tell us what you want to offer the school district. And we can see we got some money for y'all for it. Wow. What happened was Dr. Arlene Ackerman died and she uh, left Philadelphia before all the Renaissance school stuff really happened. Mm. But we were... Uh, what happened was the school district went through all the proposals and they said, okay, you, 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 and they chose us for the de-escalation room. But when it came down to put the money behind the, the, the um, organizations that got approved, Renaissance schools got dis, dis, uh, dissolved. Arlene Ackerman moved out of Philadelphia and then she passed away. So all those organizations and a lot of those people who said, yes, a de-escalation room are gone. We're gone. And so we started, we had to start back from scratch. So we started going school to school to school. And unfortunately in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, a lot of these schools had high turnovers for principals and for teachers. And so, and this actually happened. We'd be in one school and we'd be in a class. And then two weeks later, that teacher leaves. And we had to get, that that class got a whole new teacher. And then like a month later, that teacher leaves. And they had to get a whole new teacher. And this is in one school year. And so you could see like how that kind of, unrest oh absolutely you know there's no foundation in that class they nobody to trust they don't they don't have to answer to you you're not gonna be here next week like that kind of thing so i don't think nobody really looked and said love love and love does de-escalation rooms um because i think the people who were in position to notice wasn't paying attention to us because we're not big and we weren't um we weren't getting money to do it we were doing it on our own money. Do you know how it, it has finally arrived in schools? I have no clue. I have no clue. I, I remember when I first read it in the paper, and I almost cried because I was so happy that, all right, finally, because when you suspend a child and they miss all that school, this is the pathway to prison. Yeah. And so in my mind, we're starting to chip away mm-hmm. at that prison industrialization complex. If we can start bringing calm and peace to the community, you're preventing the children from going to prison. Mm. And we're all about prevention medicine. And so in my mind, I was like, finally, finally. And when I saw people trying to do earthship stuff, in my mind, without us, I was like, finally, finally. Because it don't have to be me. It don't have to be him, him. It just, it just needs to be somebody. Can somebody do it? And so... Um, to God be the glory. We see all the time now people using cans and bottles to create things and tires to build structures. And we're seeing de-escalation room, like you said, um, starting to happen. And we're starting to see people paying more attention to mental health. We've been talking about suicide prevention for a long time. My mom tried to kill herself nine times and wrote a book about it. And we've been talking about that for a long time. So in my mind, I feel like, you know, some people say the universe, you can call it the universe you know, God, karma, whatever you want to call it. But I do believe that when the world makes a cry, when, when the world makes a cry for something, 
and there needs to be a change, those who are healers will stand up to do to that call and they will respond to that call. And there is a call to the healers of the world. The world is dying and sick. And those who people who feel like they're supposed to be healers, supposed to be answering that call. And I believe people are answering and hearing and seeing and caring. De-escalation room is, that's, that's an act of love. That's an act of love. And so I'm all for it. I, I would love to see more of it, especially in hospitals for our professionals and for police, our, our civic professionals who need a place to de-escalate, a safe place to de-escalate before they come out here and they service us. Um, I, I've been working for my, my nonprofit for 12 years. I've never paid myself. This is not about money at all. I put money in my check for my check every week into my nonprofit. I don't pay myself and I don't do this for money. This is about healing. It's the only reason I'm breathing. If I don't do that, I'm not living my purpose. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of my life and everyone's life is to love. There's nothing else that's worth that has value. And it's the only thing that all of us are chasing. We may think we want, you know, a job, you want a nice house, you want to eat and all that things. But if you follow each of your motivations to its end, you're doing everything you're doing for love. Mm. And your search for it. And, and it should be people who's like ambassadors of it. And at De-Escalation Room is an act of love. Operation Olive Branch is an act of love. Earthship Philadelphia is an attempt to bring community back to the city of brotherly love. And um, the Reynolds family came all the way from New Mexico to help me. I do not believe the Lord brought them all the way this way for no reason. We're going to get our property back, I do believe. We're still waiting for court. We're supposed to go to court in October. I don't know how that works in terms of waiting your turn in court, but we still haven't got our date yet. So as of right now, I'm still in litigation waiting for my day in court for them to decide when we get our property, when I'm saying when, because we're going to get our property back, um, or we're going to get some property back, and so when once that happens, I'm back gung ho to my building. So right now we're trying to do some fundraising and save up some money so that we can, when we get our property back, start our building, start pulling permits, and bring that structure here. Um, our idea is to make sure that that structure start, first starts out as a visitor center. It's going to be like a wellness center where people can come in that community and all over. But it's for that community to come, get fresh fruits and vegetables, um, boiled eggs. We're going to have fresh um, goat milk. We're going to have chickens. And we're going to have um, a place where people can come in that community to get healing and rest. And then we're going to give that house to a family of four that's, that's that's looking for their first home. And then we're going to try to replicate that over and over and over again on different parcels in the city until ultimately we have different earthships in uh, each part of the city that can inspire different kinds of earthships and different kinds of unconventional dwellings because there's tons of different dwellings not just earthships you know they have um, storage homes and tiny homes and all kinds of ways that you can live and so we want to just invite that conversation to, to a city that's so rich and an and opportunity and so um my, my, my prayer is to be able to give you a good update in a few months and, and maybe you can come and uh, be part of our build. But um, I will not stop. It's just a matter of when. I have a meeting with uh, Councilman Johnson, um, working with him to try to get one in his district. Um, and we're going to try to work with the Department of Sanitation to figure out how we can get the dumping and the earthship building coordinated. But um, 
It's a lot of work, but the Lord gave me a lot of energy, and I'm here for it. You have incredible vision. Thank you. And you're a beautiful soul. So are you. I don't think there's much else that needs to be said. Um, without words, with gratitude, to be able to sit here with you and share these ideas and hope that reaches a lot of ears because a lot of people need to hear what, what we just talked about, what we spoke about here. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Peace. Peace. <laughs>